Welcome back to In Your Shoes. I'm Mauro Porcini, PepsiCo's Chief Design Officer. A creative life is filled with challenges, rejection, and failure. What often separates the people who rise above is that they remain resilient even in the face of adversity. Our guest today is the Chief Technology Officer at Everbridge and the former president of the Rhode Island School of Design whose passion for understanding resilience and renewal is increasingly becoming the subject of his work. As an American technologist and recipient of the White House National Design Award, whose work is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art, is bridging the gap between business, technology, and design. John Meda, welcome to In Your Shoes. Thank you. I'm a nine and a half in U.S. sizes, so... <laughs> This is where I live. Big, big shoes, huh? I don't know. Some people say it's small. Some people say it's big. You don't know. It's all relative, right? Always, always relative. So everything started. I was reading about you and your life and your journey. Everything started in a tofu factory. That's yeah. where you started to work with your first computers. Can yeah. you tell us more about this tofu factory and what happened well, there? The, uh, Tofu Factory was in Seattle, which is in Washington. And it's in a part of Seattle that is kind of, a, used to be called Chinatown. Now it's called International District. It was, um, I, I would call it a dangerous place to visit as an adult, but <laughs> as a child where you grow up, you don't know, right? And um, my parents made tofu for a living and uh, they saved up so I could have a computer at the time, nobody really had computers, but I, I wanted to learn computers, and so I, I had a an Apple II computer. Mm. Yeah, it was a big deal. And what were you doing with that computer? You were using it for work in well, the factory, or well, you using it for fun, or you what were you doing with that? Computer? Well, you know, most people don't remember anymore that the computer you would buy it and it does nothing at all. <laughs> you you plug it in and it blinks at you. That's all. Um, so you really had to write programs to get it to do anything. And there was no software. So you had to go buy a magazine or buy a book and type the program into the, to the computer and make it do things. And so I learned how to program that way because there was no software to run. And, and a few years later, many people all around the world started to get personal computers at home. And even then they didn't know exactly what to do it. Somebody was playing with it. Somebody was yeah. uh, programming, but it was really a matter I mean, for those pioneers or as we would call them today, early adopters, it was really a matter of having fun with this new thing. Well, and, yeah, they were nerds. We say early adopter, <laughs> they were all nerds, nerd. And it wasn't cool to have a computer. You would hide it. Because people would say, like, what is that? You have a computer? Nerd. So, you know, it was a little bit stigmatizing. But it was a fabulous way to enter a new world full of potential and opportunities. And many people that were yeah. playing with that new technology back then, mm -hmm. then they use it in, 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 in really inspiring ways. Mm -hmm. What is the equivalent of that computer back then? What is the equivalent today? What is that early technology we should play with, even if it's not clear yet what it does, because it's going to be part of our lives in the future. Uh, and it's better to learn it now. I think today it's a uh, VR. 
I think today it's uh, an EV, um, you know, things that people don't have yet, but may become mainstream. So what is going to happen in virtual reality in the future, in what you um, think is going to be in 10 years, our right. lives, how we buy stuff, how we connect with right. others, how we date, how we play? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think if the pandemic lasted for 10 years, I think VR technology was going to take over. But now mm-hmm. that we're coming back into real life space, I think um, it's less the case. Uh, I think that um, you tr- I'm sure you tried virtual reality meetings. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of bad, but kind of good, better than this video. Mm-hmm. So I think if the pandemic stayed for 10, 20 years, it would get really amazing. But now I'm not sure anymore. And I'm really glad <laughs> that this hasn't happened. <laughs> I was waiting for this additional like comment. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so if the pandemic, if, you know, if it's a Omicron and all the letters of the Greek alphabet come, then maybe VR is going to take over and take hold. Um, I think EVs are different because EVs are letting us be independent from uh, petroleum, gas, and things like that which is really important. Mm-hmm. So I think EVs are more likely to, to take off. And EVs are a little bit harder to own because the habits are very different, as you know. Tell us more about that. Um, by the way, I've, this is uh, in my house and the dogs will bark sometimes. So I know the, uh, in your shoes, you're in my house. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, so we know that you are real. This is not the metaverse. There are real no, dogs around. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's real dogs and et cetera. So, and everyone's used to all kind of sounds. So thanks for uh, withstanding with me. Um, and they're always, uh, they're protecting us. And the metaverse needs, needs no protection, really. I have um, two dogs too. And so... They may bark any moment. You know, well. they hear each other barking <laughs> and they have to get involved. Um, but talking about EVs, uh, I think EVs are different because you have to charge them. Mm-hmm. And you have to charge them for a long time. And that's new to the automotive experience. So what is going to happen there? There, there? there is a full new a world of design that didn't exist in automotive yet. I mean, the, the automotive designers until now were designing the style of the car, eventually the ergonomics and the interaction within the interiors. But, but, but now there is a land of new opportunities and also the need of new capabilities in that industry, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, you could never imagine making a purchase on your mobile phone of a car like five years ago. But uh, I bought my EV on my mobile phone, and I thought that was a strange feeling. (laughs) Um, You know, you would never do that, but now you do that. Uh, And also, how you use time is different with an EV. So how do you use that charging time is an interesting question. Yeah. And what do you do with that? And then what happens inside the car, right? Uh, And what happens in the car, exactly. Yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, all cars, whether they are, gas power, electric power are changing. They're becoming more like computers. But I think just by having a giant battery, it changes how you think of making a connected car. Yeah. I was having lunch today with my innovation team. Mm. And, and, and we had here in New York City, people coming from different parts of America and Europe and other regions of the world. And, and one of the people that are at the table at a certain point showed me the video of a Uber in San Francisco 
without a driver. I mean, the, it was an automa automated vehicle. Happening now, it was recorded yesterday. So that was very fascinating. And we were there having lunch and we we're like, well, in the future, we may have our lunches in the car. You know, the car could be designed in a completely different way. And obviously we're all thinking about business meetings happening in the car and the car becoming an office. But, uh, you know, we, we work in a food and beverage company. We always think about that in, with the filter. What could happen in the relation with food and beverage in those cars when you move from one place and you, uh, to the other? And you try to optimize the time that you have. And maybe you know, when you move from one office to the other, from the office home, you're having your meal as well or business lunches as well. What do you think is going to happen in those cars, eventually even in relation with food and beverage? I don't know if you ever thought about this. Well, I, I think that's an important inflection because when we talk about autonomous vehicles, we already have them. They're called riding the subway <laughs> or riding the bus, or riding the train, riding the airplane. I mean, yes, they're not autonomous, but they are piloted by someone else, so you don't have to worry about it. The difference, however, is I know that it's not etiquette to eat on the subway. Or maybe it's kind of unsanitary. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so maybe having those private spaces makes the food and beverage industry more compatible with being on the go. But you don't get into a cab and eat, right? Yeah. Uh, or into well, an Uber and eat. <laughs> well, it depends if you're busy. <laughs> Look out. But that's a factor. And... We started this conversation talking about tofu, talking about food. Yes. Again, mm. uh, we, I work mm. in a food and beverage company. Yeah. I, I want to brainstorm a little bit with you. Sure. You know, w w when I think of the future of food and beverage, especially from our perspective, right? We, we do drinks and snacks. Uh, um, I imagine a future when you wake up and Alexa or whatever is going to be the intelligence in the house will tell you, Good morning, John. I know you didn't sleep very well last night because maybe you have an aura ring that is monitoring your sleep or you have an Apple Watch or probably you will have other devices on your skin, a tattoo maybe or a microchip in your body, something that is monitoring your uh, body. Uh, the intelligence will know about your agenda for the day, you know, how busy you are uh, and obviously we'll have all your health history. And so this intelligence will prepare a drink for you on the base of your desire, your taste, what you love, but also on the base of what your body needs. Mm. Like I'm going to give you an extra boost of vitamins and some caffeine and magnesium this morning. So, and, and the same we could do with snacks. We could 3D print snacks as well. And then you can still go to lunch and have a good salad from, you know, the local farm or a good pasta for me <laughs> being an Italian or a good tofu. What do you think about this scenario? Do you think that the world is going to go in that direction or do you see something that eventually didn't mention is going to be even different than this? What's your thoughts? Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to think about food and beverage industry and to brainstorm with you. You're the legend. <laughs> so I don't think I have any new ideas to give to you. Um, I'm so struck by how this word processed food signifies bad. Processed food, somehow bad. Yet I think most of the food I eat has been processed somehow. It's been carried somewhere or it's been crushed somehow and processed somehow to get to me. So I think it's a question of 
how do we come into contact with food that has been synthesized, processed, that we get excited about to eat? And I think the natural excitation comes from different kinds of things like umami or that kind of beautiful, buttery, sort of like rich taste, which we associate with certain foods. I mean, butter is technically processed, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder how we get into contact with synthesized foods that we enjoy and we don't have to feel bad about. And so it's a mix of branding, storytelling, design, I mean, making sure that it's coming from the right place. So it's a mix of multiple dimensions, right? It's the story you tell, but it's also where it's coming from and the authenticity of that story. A hundred percent. I mean, what is it? Um, I, I, you know, the idea of brand, my, my favorite story is the one from Joe Gabbia and Brian Chesky from Airbnb and how when they launched Airbnb, um, people weren't like renting Airbnbs because the photographs were bad. So they went to New York and hired a bunch of photographers to take pictures. And by taking pictures, it was able to more properly communicate the quality of the spaces. You could say the brand. Joe was our guest in a podcast just uh, recently, and he told us that story. It's fascinating. It was fascinating to see how a designer build a business and how a designer is driving purposeful branding that is a buzzword today in marketing everywhere. But you know, that where the designer is coming from is, is always very, very interesting. Talking about design, you have a background that is blending the world of uh, engineering and science and technology, and then the world of art and design and all your life, you have been at the uh, living a good crossroad between these two different worlds and really being an ambassador of a dialogue between the two worlds. Can you tell us more about this and how, why it's so important, you know, the world of art and design in this world today? You say that I, I, I saw an article where you were saying that art and design are really the, are going to be the key driver of the 21st century as technology and science have been in the 20th century. Can you tell us more about your vision? Yeah, well, you know, my dogs will tell the story really much better than me <laughs> when they get involved. There you go, you see? Um, they heard you. <laughs> well, I kind of feel like I've been in different worlds, whether it's design, design, or engineering and science, or business and investing. And I think I've noticed that all the worlds are kind of similar. It's just they speak different languages, as, as you know well, Mauro, because you cross business technology and design yourself. And it really is an a important thing to be a good bridge that connects these different people together or divisions or areas, factions maybe, silos, you know, stronger words. And I find that people who can cross those bridges are generally rare. And if you stay too long in one spot, you you get lazy in atrophy. So I have been able to move between spots, uh, pure business, pure design, pure technology, just to kind of uh, refresh myself. And if somebody wants to uh, start a journey similar to yours, or in any case, if somebody want to live at the crossroad between these different worlds, what kind of 
hard skill, real technical skills do you need? And what kind of soft skills oh, do you need? Great question. I think the soft skills are the same across all three, but I think the technology one is the hardest because technology, as you know, keeps, keeps changing. It's why I spent six years writing how to speak machine to make it easier to communicate machine learning. And after I finished it, I realized, wow, I have a lot more to learn. So that's why I shifted deeply into technology again. And soft skills, what are the ones that you think are the most important? So my, my favorite soft skill is realizing that being smart doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Tell us more about that. That's interesting. <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, when you are younger and trying to figure things out, really your good ideas will propel you. But when you're older and leading all kinds of teams that go across everything, I realize that being right doesn't really matter if you're trying to lead people forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I might be Mauro and I might think like, this is the right answer. And then, see, everyone's getting interested. The dogs are all getting, getting interested. Yeah. I, uh, I, maybe, <laughs> I, maybe my dog. That's, maybe, great. Like, That's great. That's yeah. great. That's <laughs> great. It's like, this is the world of remote. Um, yes. I think the most important soft skill is recognizing that what got you to where you are isn't necessarily what moves you even further forward. And that is that when you're building your career, you really have to do the right things, be right, show up right, and like don't compromise. But I think when you get older and become a leader, and older can mean like 23 these days, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you, you have to realize that compromise is how you bring everyone together and move forward. It's kind of like in our podcast, you're hearing dogs and, you know, we had to compromise with the dogs and <laughs> they're hard to bargain with. Right. But I'm sure, Mauro, in your own career, you know what I'm saying when I say that you might have had an idea and you know you were right. But there were a bunch of people you had to bring on board. And you decided, oh, I think you're right. Let's keep going. And I think most people don't understand why that's important. And those people haven't learned that soft skill yet, is what I'm saying. Does that make I, sense? Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, the ability to bring people with you yeah. is so, so important. And often, especially when... CEOs or business leaders or leaders in general, hire somebody to disrupt, to change the culture. Mm. Often the biggest mistake I see happening is they tell this person, okay, you're here to disrupt. So go and change everything. Mm. And these people, because they are protected by the, you know, the right sponsor, mm -hmm. they just go and disrupt. Yeah. And yeah, usually they last one or two years, one or two months, depending on the nature of the company. Mm -hmm. They disrupt, but they're not building anything. Building. So the, mm -hmm. the ability to compromise, to yes. take trade-offs, to disrupt that understanding when to stop and, and, and eventually even step back, even because in reality, you're still working forward toward your goal. I completely agree. It's so, so important. Yeah, it's it's a soft skill that if you're taught to be a designer and you're taught to be like, you know, 
uh, have integrity and don't compromise. And then I think later on, it's hard for designers to become leaders because they don't know how to compromise. And they're puzzled. Like, why would I have to compromise? Why would I lose my integrity? It's because you might not be right. Yeah. And it's we are right, not you are right. Yeah. And that's a hard shift to make to build that soft skill. I I completely agree. Well, actually, one of your multiple hats over the years has been the one of leading a very important design school. Mm. So what, what is important for people that, you know, young, new generation, young people starting to study, they study design or eventually they study business. Uh, what would be the message to send them? What would you tell them? What is important today? Uh, it's so hard, right? I mean, there are people who were meant to study business, people who are meant to study design, people who are meant to study engineering, and they should do what they do best. There are people who are on the edges who might be able to do two. Maybe they're not the best at either, but they're good at going across. So I guess my sense is that if you are good at business and good at design, you know, become a product manager. <laughs> if you're good at um, engineering and good at design, become a, a front-end engineer. If you're good at business and design, start a business around design. Uh, but some people who sit on the edges have a problem because they feel they have to be good at that one thing. So... If you're not good at that one thing, it doesn't mean all is lost. It means you might be someone who's really good at being at the edges. How is important the ability to have a vision uh, and lead through that vision, inspire through that vision, share that vision? I, I'm, I'm fascinated, for instance, by the story of, of Elon Musk and Tesla how yeah. this man has been able to grow financially the company to excite shareholders and investors in Wall Street through that vision. Even if we're talking about compromises and trade-offs, not everything is perfect, right? So uh, how important is to have a vision for a leader at any level, in any kind of position? Well, we, we admire leaders we hear of who are basically dictators who can get everything done their way, and they're very rare. And it's unclear if that is the way all companies can be led. Some companies can be led that way. Uh, but I believe the best leaders who are the ones who are not the Elon Musks or Steve Jobs are the ones that find ways to get the whole community to work together generally in the right direction and then unlock the power of scale. And it's always never about you. It's about them. And that takes a leader who, as I was saying before, can compromise, but not compromise too much <laughs> at the same time. And, and the, in that sentence, there is the challenge, right? What is, what is that compromise? How to decide when to stop compromising, when to start compromising? Yeah. Well, well, you know, uh, our common friend, Paola Antonelli, yeah. Um, says her favorite recipe is collect good ingredients, cook them good, cook them well, and your recipe is done. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> her favorite recipe. I, I love that. So same thing. That's why usually we go out for dinner with Paula. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy. It's just uh, hard. Yeah. You, you've been working a lot on the idea, on the theme of resilience. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Um, well, I think that resilience is something that we care about a lot because of COVID. We became aware of our mortality and felt fragile and needed to come back stronger, resilient. And so by being in the space of managing what are called critical events, bad things that happen, it's helped me understand what we should be afraid of and also what we cannot control. There are certain things we cannot control. We can't control the way the earth moves around the sun and creates seasons. We cannot change the way the earth has a molten core that creates earthquakes and volcanoes. We can't change that. There's some things we can't change about nature and how it's changing, but there are things that we can change, and that's where we have to take action. And then going back again to this double head that you have, the two words you are, you've been working on for many years now, uh, there are many people working in science, engineering, R&D in general, listening to us today, many working in the world of design, and then there is all the world of business. What would you say to the engineers to let them understand the world of art and design? And what would you say to the designers and the creative crowds to let them understand more of the world of science and technology, how to put them together, what they should know about the other world to work in the best possible way together? This is a really hard fundamental question. Um, I think that most people in technology don't have to care a lot about design because they do a different kind of design. They do a mechanical design. Like I can imagine all the engineers who make sure that the bottle that, um, your beverages get put into, don't leak. Mm -hmm. That's a very important <laughs> feature of the design, which is done by engineers yeah. who are designing to engineer. So I think, it's, it, I think design in the creative way is kind of a hard sell. I've known it for a long time. However, I found for designers, they know that to make really incredible experiences, you have to understand the material science. You have to understand the business constraints. You have to understand why it can be done on mobile and desktop. Like what's the difference? So you have to understand that. And so for them though, the barrier to technology is very high because technology keeps changing. So that's why I really spent six years to enable anyone to speak machine with how to speak machine. But the book was a terrible failure because I had no time to market it, um, but it is a way for any creative person to understand that if you understand how mathematics works at the fundamental level, you quickly understand how machine learning works and the things that can do, the things that can't do, and things to be worried about. And designers love to worry about humanity. And that's why for designers to understand more of technology, I think it's extremely important. You mentioned one of your books. I think you were 
five books, right? Uh, I don't know. Sorry. You, you forgot how many <laughs> books you I wrote. Just, I, I just have a bad memory, that's all. <laughs> so, but you've, you've wrote multiple books mm -hmm. and, but you're also very busy. You had very important roles in many different mm -hmm. entities, organizations, and companies. Why did you write books? Why? Why is it important for you to write books? Why do you like to write oh. books? Because if you write so much, probably you like it as well. Well, I mean, I mean, look at what your career has done, Mauro. I mean, you've touched so many products and services in your life. So I think you've written many books with the products you made. Uh, for me, my, my, the first part of my life was more in theory. That's why I had more books. You'll notice it took me six years to write that one book because I was working. So, <laughs> so just for context, uh, it was because my job before was to understand the theory, but my, I'm just a regular working person now. So I don't make, I don't have time to make lots of books. But it was a just the out, just by the way, between brackets, uh, the outputs of your thinking or there was a different purpose, for instance, is a need that you had because you love writing or you wanted to coach and mentor and teach and share certain kind of theories or it was for your brand. What hmm. were any reason uh, um, beyond? Yeah. No, I, I wish there was something deeper. It's kind of like <laughs> when you, why you make art or why you design or why you create. I, I just had a, a period. I had a period of a lots of books period. That period has, has ended. So <laughs> it's like my blue period. It's all over, done. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. What about all the world of sustainability? We, we live oh, in a yeah. world that needs yeah. to change. We need to change behaviors. We need to change the way we interact with products, brands. Uh, and obviously there are multiple actors here involved. There are the companies and the brands, obviously on one side. There is people that need to evolve and change the way they behave. There is all the world of uh, governments and different kinds of organizations that play a part in it. So it's a very, very broad question. We could talk for hours about, you know, starting from this broad question, but what do you think about sustainability and how the world needs to change around this topic? Well, a couple of things. I think The power of the pandemic is that many of us were stuck watching lots of video. So for the first time, we had more time to look at the world more as an omniscient. And you can see so many parts of the world you never bothered looking at besides the, ro the roads you walked on. And you could tell there's something wrong with the world. And the pandemic is happening. The second thing is it's pretty obvious that Um, the, the, the earth is not happy with what we're doing. Uh, and we can see it in the weather patterns, which are a little bit off, right? In some cases, a lot off. So it's become an opportunity to actually, I mean, people say, is it too late or is it early enough? It's become an opportunity to actually pay attention. Now, however, though, as you know, from the scale that you work at, wow, um, What can you do to make an impact as a corporation is there's so many other sort of goals you have to meet. And that's what I'm excited about the new kind of um, regulations coming out from the SEC to be able to kind of enforce ESG type of framing. 
So companies have to at least start asking that question and putting it into terms that more people can at least start talking about in the investment world. I think that's huge. One last question. We could talk for hours. Your mind is fascinating. Your answer are fascinating uh, as well. Uh, the, if I think about, we talk about soft skills. Mm-hmm. Over the years, uh, it became more and more, I realized more and more how important it is a soft skill that very rarely companies talk about. And this is the power of kindness. In the world where you need to compromise, where you multiple times today, you talk about we and them. In this kind of world, the power of kindness and bringing others with you, but doing it out of love, out of respect, uh, in an authentic way is really, really, is amazing. This power is amazing. And maybe you didn't need it 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where eventually you didn't need the agility, the efficiency that you need today in these extremely complex systems where, I mean, you're a master of this, where you need to simplify. And kindness is such an amazing driver of simplicity and true connections and dialogue and and ability to work together. What do you think about kindness in the business world and in society today? You know, in the world of resilience, there's a notion that you become resilient because you recognize that you are a community that is helping each other survive and thrive. If you are one person alone, you're individually resilient, but you'll get wiped out. So resilience is about the relationships you have with each other. And I think that we can say that about the creative world because you never had to learn soft skills because you need the hard skill of creating, which is hard and it's very purpose-minded and you get it done, you know, no matter what. But I think that not just kindness, but relating to the world is what opens up that design. Do you remember the moment where you switched from, this is a really good idea because I think it's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) To someone says, Mauro, I I don't know. Have you thought of this? No, no, I I, I think that's a bad idea. And then at some point you're like, huh, maybe they were right. (laughs) Maybe, tell me more, tell me more. And so you're able to talk to your audience and then they're more interested in what you're doing. And then you built that relationship. They became a customer. Uh, I think that that customer is now part of your network. They're together. They will come back to you. So then you are a resilient person. And then as a company, you do that scale where everyone is connected to each other and they're able to talk to other customers in their world, in their shoes, like your podcast. And suddenly it isn't just kindness. It's a rational way that we bring ourselves together through the objects and experiences we make for others. And I find that the soft skill is that softness to accept someone else's kind of thinking. I, the softness to accept someone else's kind of thinking, I think is the perfect uh, way to wrap up this conversation. Uh, John, thanks so much for sharing your vision, your thoughts, and your ideas with us today. Thank you for coming into my nine and a half size shoes. 